The Daily Wire just released the new documentary by Candace Owens, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, which of course is about George Floyd and the subsequent BLM riots in the summer of 2020. Now, there's some great things that emerge from the film. We'll dig into those. But more importantly, there's an idea that the film only glances at that I think deserves way more attention. And we'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Our show today is sponsored by our friends over at Element Home Loans. If you're looking for a home or want to refinance your existing home, then you need to go to our friends over at KevinBlairTeam.com because the Kevin Blair team at Element Home Loans is one of the best in the business. Not only are they not going to try to lure you in with tricks and gimmicks and false interest rates that you can't actually qualify for, they're going to get all of your information up front so that you know exactly what you can afford. And that's more important than ever, especially as we're living in an economy right now that is continuing to inflate and gas prices continuing to go up. You need clarity and you need the kind of integrity that can come from a team like Element Home Loans. So go over to KevinBlairTeam.com today and you can pre-approve totally for free for a home loan and they'll let you know what kind of home that you can qualify for. And when you go over there, let them know that IndieThinker sent you. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we're going to talk about the new documentary, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold. We're going to point out some highlights from the film today that I think are kind of some of the main takeaways. But then also, I thought about a, a more overarching idea, theme, perhaps, throughout everything that we saw in the summer of 2020 that I really think deserves a little bit more elaboration that the film really doesn't go into. So I'm going to offer that toward the, the end of the film, but maybe something on a little bit lighter note. So uh, I want you to look at this picture that I just recently saw online. Actually, it was introduced by Jordan Peterson. Now, this is this rainbow looking thing is a, a cross, cross reference chart, I suppose, of 65,000 uh, references in the Bible. So essentially every line that you see on this picture that looks like a rainbow is a a passage of scripture that is referenced somewhere else in, in the Bible. And this happens 65,000 times in the Bible. And um, now the reason I wanted to show that is just one, it's a really cool looking picture, but also because there's something that uh, Christians know about the Bible that I think sometimes doesn't get a lot of play or maybe is widely unknown, which is this, that one of the greatest proofs for the veracity and the authenticity of Scripture is uh, the internal evidence of the Bible. So, for instance, I'm talking about things like, why do the disciples look so bad sometimes? Why is such a poor light shine uh, shown upon them at, at times in the scripture? And and why do we see the heroes, even of the Old Testament, kind of like in all of their gory details? Well, of course, what we say is that if you were intending to write a, fictition, uh, a fictitious tale that doesn't authentically give you what took place in these stories, you would have a much more kind of like Marvel super uh, hero cinematic universe version of the tale where uh, where they always win, the bad guys are always die. And, and so needless to say, the, the way in which the Bible talks about itself is very honest and very raw. So that's one of the internal evidences that perhaps the Bible is a authoritative document that can be reliable. 
And uh, so another one of those is the fact that the Bible affirms the Bible. So from beginning to end, as you can see on that picture that I showed you, the Bible consistently refers to itself. Now, you may think to yourself, well, just self-referencing doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean anything, except when you take into account this, that when you're self-referencing things that happened thousands of years ago that are happening in the present, well, then you have something to look at. Now, for instance, I'm talking about this. I'm talking about many things, but one of them would be the, the prophecy of Alexander the Great in the book of Daniel, which comes, I think, some 400, 500 years before Alexander the Great even starts his campaign. Um, and, and now, while that may not be a self-reference, what we do have is we have something else in the Bible. We have something called messianic prophecy. So we have things talked about in the Old Testament that are then fulfilled in the New Testament. And without going into great deal detail on that, suffice to say, there are mathematicians who have gone into study this this uh, phenomenon. And of the 48 or so messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that are clearly about the Messiah, um, Jesus fulfills every single one of them in his, in his ministry here on this earth. And then they've quantified, like, the, the ability for a person to be able to do that, even if they were intentionally trying to, you know, set out on a journey to try to make all of these things look as though uh, they were speaking about that individual. And the, the odds are astronomical. And according to Empower International, that number is one in 10 seventeenths. So in other words, a one with 17 zeros after it. So I'm not even going to tell you what number that is because I personally have no idea. Suffice to say, it would have been astronomically impossible for one person to fulfill all of those references in in the Old Testament, one person to be able to fulfill all of those things. So anyway, it's it's just a really, it's a beautiful picture. It's also a really cool reminder that there is this consistency, this cohesion in the Bible that that deserves that we do more than glibly gloss over things that we find audacious, like the virgin birth or the resurrection of Jesus or any of the miracles that you find in the Bible. I know it's easy for you to try to, to uh, or for you or for anybody else to just look at those stories and to, and to mock them. Uh, glibly, hopefully you don't do that, but, um, and I say hopefully you don't, not just because I want you to believe that what the Bible has to say is important, but but more importantly, because I don't want you to be the kind of person who doesn't think for themselves, the kind of person who just has a bias in their mind and then throws things out without actually giving them the consideration that they deserve. So, um, I guess I bring this up in the context of this documentary because we need to think for ourselves. We need to think critically. We need to think and analyze deeply before we come to conclusions. And so um, I think we need to do that with the Bible, but we also need to do that with major historical events like what happened in 2020. And Candace Owens' documentary on this subject is an incredibly important piece in helping us reassess and look back at what took place so that we can critically think about um, all of the things that have arisen from, from the George Floyd incident, the BLM riots, the BLM movement. So the first thing that I kind of wanted to show you, I guess, is the trailer for Candace Owens's new documentary, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold. So here's that. So Black Lives Matter released their 990 IRS filings. They collected $80 million. Where is that money? It's not here. 
everything looks worse than it was. Where have you seen that money impacted throughout the city? So my producer just sent me a link. It is just shocking to me because of how much money was raised to think that where he lived, the bills weren't being covered. Super frustrating, but that's a dead end, so. And here's where it gets really interesting. Ready for some BLM pride? All right, so the film kind of is in two parts. The first part is about George Floyd, a little bit of his background, people that knew him and that kind of thing. And then the second part is the subsequent kind of like the riots and BLM and the organization and what they did and how they capitalized on the death of George Floyd. So I would just say this, part one was way less provocative to me than part two. Now, it could just be that they were setting the stage with George Floyd, but they spent a lot of time on him. And I'm just going to give kind of my personal thoughts on part one, and then we'll jump more substantively into part two. And, And as far as I can say with part one is I just consistently and continue to look at George Floyd as as just a victim of all of these things. He was a patsy, as it were, uh, for organizations like BLM. He was a convenient, you know, a convenient representative for the movement. And that's really no fault of his own. What happened to him is unfortunate. He's a victim of Derek Chauvin. He's a victim of the media, as we'll perhaps even see a little bit later. But he's also a victim of BLM, and he's a victim of people who wanted to use them to get away with any number of things, whether it be governmentally or whether it be people who are just looking to riot and loot. And, and, and I think that that's very sad. So I don't know how much we need to really establish George Floyd at the centerpiece of a documentary that really has way more to do with, with BLM. And so I guess I have a little bit of an issue with consistently digging into the past of George Floyd because it seems irrelevant to what actually took place in his life, or sorry, what took place in his death, I should say. Um, It it seems irrelevant to consistently uh, dig up his past when his past doesn't necessarily have to do with Derek Chauvin and, and that event, except in so far that obviously, and I think this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, because I love to hear myself talk, that If George Floyd wasn't a career criminal, if he wasn't high on fentanyl, if there's so many ifs here, if he wasn't trying to pass a $20 bill, none of these things would have happened. So I think it's important to go at least in that regard. But but ultimately, we could just totally dismiss any kind of smear campaign against George Floyd if the media, the government and BLM were not looking to use George Floyd to prop him up as some kind of saint, because surely... He, sh- he seems to be canonized, especially by people on the left. I mean, you've got Nancy Pelosi stating in front of a group of people and looking to the heavens at supposedly George Floyd and thanking him for dying for injustice so that we could all have justice. I mean, it's ridiculous. You can see it here. So again, thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. And so the only reason to talk about George Floyd's past is to talk about why people would have an incentive to try to canonize such a man who is clearly not a saint and clearly an unfortunate victim of of what took place. And so I'll reiterate that because I think people get very emotional about this stuff. And I think for rightly so what I mean, even watching the documentary and seeing what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd just made me sick to my stomach. And I just think that there's 
little that you can do to justify the way in which Chauvin treated uh, George Floyd. And that's kind of like an understatement, right? Um, but needless to say, the second part of the film is the important part of the film and the thing that you need to watch. And it illustrates, I would say, cultural phenomenon that is going on in, uh, in America especially really, really well. In fact, one of the first things that it covers is kind of the extortionist crowd who wish to use weaponized empathy, as I've talked about before on the show, which is just simply a arm-twisting technique to force you to try to take a position that you don't necessarily agree with or to try to get you emotional so that you don't think critically about a certain subject. Um, and, and people try to use empathetic talking points to try to push you into uh, agreeing with something that isn't necessarily rational or, or should be agreed upon. And, and this is on full display in this documentary as we look at some of the celebrities who came out and were bailing out people who were selfishly and self-interestedly going into stores, bashing them open, stealing all of the stuff, hundreds and thousands of dollars of merchandise being stolen over the course of this over, over these riots and then people calling it like reparations and the like. And in the meantime, business owners whose lives have been absolutely devastated by the fact that they had all these stolen things stolen from them are supposed to just suck it up. And, and this is shown really well in a Chrissy Teigen clip where we see that she speaks out uh, against a guy who said, hey, these people just, you know, looted my store and Chrissy Teigen's flippant response uh, and and the aftermath of that can be seen here. We were looted for over $400,000 worth of merchandise. Wow. It's really, it was a disaster. You then went online, and what did you observe that you thought was out of the ordinary? Chrissy Teigen had posted on her Instagram, you know, I'll help the protesters get out of jail. Then she said, well, let me up it to another 100,000. Now, when you have a, approximately 30 million followers at the time, you can start a movement and people say, oh, well, she's gonna bail me out and everything. And then, you know, you've got celebrities like Jennifer Gardner giving four hearts to that post. Well, they all live in gated communities and it's not their stuff being destroyed. And you had just been looted. Yeah, I went online and posted an Instagram of the store being looted and I tagged, thanks, Chrissy. She wrote under this post, well, like anyone's really shopped there for 10 years. So her instinct after seeing that yeah. your store had been actually looted, yeah. her response is, well, no one shops at your store anyway. So she was not sympathetic to the victim in this circumstance. Not, not one bit. But Jen Atkins was actually worse. Jen Atkins, mm -hmm. she's a friend of Chrissy Teigen. You've tagged her in this post because you sell her products. Mm -hmm. She comments on this post as well, right. basically saying, use the shampoo to clean up the graffiti. And my looting cream comes out in October. So they're having fun. They're, they're mocking the looting. Right. You should be in federal prison if you're inciting violence with that many people following you. So Dana decides to jump in and call you and Kitson a racist store because um, you were upset right. that this your store true. was looted. Yeah. This made you a racist somehow. Right, right. So this was quite literally blaming the victim. Then what happened? She sends a DM saying, well, before we get on the phone, you're gonna have to apologize to Chrissy Teigen 
and then I'll take down the post. So we got on the phone for 53 minutes and most of the conversation was, you need to apologize to Chrissy Teigen. I said, I'm not apologizing to her. There's no reason to apologize to Chrissy Teigen, but what are you looking for? Are you looking for money? I was worried that how aggressive they were and the looting was still approaching. And my main store, the value in that store is much greater than the store that got looted. Right, so because she's publicly posted your store right. as being owned by a racist, right, right. concerned that they're gonna come loot you some more. Who was the check written out to? Act Blue. To Act Blue. Right, okay. which is BLM. Black Lives Matter. So she, right. she was basically saying, if you make a donation to Black Lives Matter. I'll take down the post. All right, so here we have a, a, uh, a story, like a micro story to serve the meta story of what took place with, with BLM. So we have this quasi-celebrity defending Chrissy Teigen and asking this guy to uh, apologize or that actually he can uh, give a little bit of an offering to BLM and then all of this will go away. Now, this is a great, important starting point because... It's hard not to see that this is exactly what Black Lives Matter did. They used George Floyd as an opportunity to monetize their business. So, again, George Floyd throughout this whole thing is just this unfortunate victim. But it does paint the broader picture of so much of what's going on in America today. You agree with me or I will find some, you know, some epithet uh, to, to throw at you. So you agree with the fact that minors should transition or you obviously love suicide, right? This is kind of the emotional blackmail uh, that, that goes on and, and the kind of fake tears that we'll see in uh in just a little bit but 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 i want to highlight this because you need to be aware of emotional blackmail because you need to be aware of dishonest tactics that are being used by people now the other thing is this is um we talk about the money that went to black lives matter as we'll dig into here in a little bit uh but that was 70 million dollars uh, effectively that went to black lives matter in the span of a year's time because of the capitalizing on George Floyd's death. But, uh, but one of the stark uh, realizations in this film that, is, that I think is shown in brilliant color is George Floyd's square and how the businesses there have been driven out of business and how desolate it is um, and, and how Black Lives Matter has deeply prospered throughout this whole thing. But the place where George Floyd was actually killed um, is, is devastated now because of all of the aftermath actions of activists and rioters and looters. And so here's Candace speaking to a local pastor and showing kind of the town square where all those businesses used to be. And it's just, it's a desert town now. So here's that. As I'm looking around, there's so many um, empty shops on the block, things that are boarded up. How does that make you feel to see that? Is, is there ever gonna be life again on this street? Well, I feel like there has been a tremendous loss of, of the way of life here has changed, the economy, the destruction of businesses. Most of the businesses here that were destroyed, had the insurance would not be able to cover that. Right. And so it's a hard thing for people to rebuild themselves, especially after what they went through. So as you can see, it's an absolutely desolate place that used to be a th thriving business square. And George Floyd's square is really a sad, sad tale because it's sad 
of certainly uh, for George Floyd and what took their place there and for the aftermath of his family and what they had to experience throughout all of that, whatever that may look like. Um, the documentary even goes into a little bit of detail how his family didn't really have a relationship with him. But, it, you know, I think it's a little bit overwrought. Whenever you lose somebody, even if you weren't close to them, it still hurts you. It hits close to home. But if we're going to talk about victims, we must also talk about the victims of the business owners and the people that used to have thriving businesses, one can only assume, in that area that has now been made desolate because of activists, looters, and rioters in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. So George Floyd's certainly a victim, but yeah, you have to also admit, so are these people who suffered the wrath of these misguided fools. Um, and, and there's also some other unintended victims throughout all of this. And I, I think this is perhaps maybe one of the most provocative pieces of the whole documentary as Candace Owens begins to show where the $70 million that came to Black Lives Matter actually went to. $3 million in LGBTQ organizations around our nation, uh, $3 million went from Black Lives Matter to these organizations. So here's kind of a supercut of all that money going to these places. $200,000 went to the Transgender Justice Funding Project. Another $200,000 went to the Transgender United Fund. Another $200,000 went to the Transgender Law Center. Another $200,000 went to Black Transgendered Media. Another $200,000 went to the Transgendered Variant and Intersex Justice Project. Another 200K went to the Transgendered District. Another 200K went to the St. James Infirmary. In continuation, the Center for Halstead received $200,000 from Black Lives Matter. They are Chicago's community center dedicated to securing the health and well-being of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, and queer people of Chicago. Similarly, we have the Audrey Lord Project, which received $200,000. Another $400,000 went to Transgender Advocates Knowledgeable Empowering, or TAKE. For example, an additional $200,000 was given to the House of Tulip. $200,000 that went to the Griffin Gracie Retreat and Educational Center, known as House of Gigi for short. So we see in the aftermath of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, that we don't only see a reckoning of race in America and a resurgence of talking about race in America at an ironic time where perhaps there is greater freedom in America than at any other time, and we're speaking financial and, and otherwise. Uh, that is not to suggest that there are not issues that need to be addressed in ways in which uh, racism still exists in America. That's true, but it is so incredibly unimportant and uninvasive in the lives of average people that it really is almost not even worth discussing. Um, but suffice to say, one of the aftermath occurrences of, of the BLM uh, riots is not just a resurgence of talking about race, but also an odd kind of cropping up of trans identity and the LGBTQIA movement writ large. We see things like drag queen story hour in schools and, and kid-friendly or family-friendly drag events all over the United States. And it's... It's enough to make one sit back and scratch your head and say, where in the world are these things coming from? And it seems to be happening in more and more rapid pace. Just on the show not too long ago last week, we talked about this happening in Chattanooga, Tennessee, of all places. 
So where is this coming from? Where is this surge of, of trans activism really coming from? Well, inevitably, it cannot help but have, be coming from the $3 million invested in these activist organizations. So this is not even a conspiracy theory thing. This is follow the money and just open your eyes kind of thing. As long as you're not gullible, you can clearly see that there's a paper, paper trail to these organizations. When they have this infu large infusion of cash, then they're able to infiltrate the public school system and infiltrate cities around America. So in part, the Black Lives Matter movement is certainly responsible for the, the rise of these kind of this LGBTQI a activism. And now there's another thing too that this money went to, and that is to the training of protesters. You'll see that here in a clip where some of the or the money that went to Black Lives Matter went to an organization that trains protesters in how to protest. So here's that. That they did. A closer look, you'll see that they actually dispersed that funding to organizations that were in care of Black Lives Matter. This means that actually another organization is accepting the donation on behalf of BLM. So I decided to investigate that further, and I noticed a really bizarre pattern. A lot of those organizations train activists. They train the youth to become activists in their communities. One organization even goes as far as bragging on their website about their history of getting arrested, protesting, and they offer courses on various techniques like bird dogging. That's a technique that's used to confront politicians. Now, the reason I bring this up is real simple, is that the illusion of protesting with a degree of confidence also combined with the complicity of the mainstream media adds for an explosive combination that we saw in 2020. Why did we have such fiery but mostly peaceful protests? Why did we have billion, a billion dollars of damage done and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars of merchandise stolen uh, as a result of all of this stuff? Well, because what Black Lives Matter was able to do pretty effectively was to was to bend the emotions of people and to manipulate the, emo the emotions of people so that they became irate. Now, how did they do that? They did that with professional trained protesters who went into these cities and didn't really care about the issues. They just gave the illusion of numbers and the illusion of passion to a movement that that infuriate, uh, inflamed, I'll say, that inflamed a group of people into the frenzy that the Black Lives Matter movement became. And now, I would just say Black Lives Matter and the rioting and the looting is an unfortunate happenstance of the real goal of Black Lives Matter, which was to rake in tons of cash and to buy large mansions. Here's Candace Owens going to the, the mansion of Patrice Cullors. What I see in the driveway are two cars and a sign that says you are exactly where you are supposed to be. She was demanding that I come outside. Hi. Hello. Hi, you're welcome to record. I just want to talk. Are you instructed not to speak to anybody? We're not trying to harass you. We'll gladly leave. We're just wondering if we can speak to anybody. Sorry, what was that? Okay, I just thought this was a house for Black Lives Matter. It's unacceptable and it's dangerous that anybody, any stranger, 
come outside of my house. You're just trying to figure out if this house is actually being used for black people in a creative space at all, and it doesn't seem that way. What happened this morning is not safety. It's not what I deserve. It's not what, so they're literally trying to destroy us. They're trying to destroy me. They're trying to destroy the movement. And I really, I just need us to be stronger. Thank you, sir. Now, every sane person who sees Patrice Cullors reacting to Candace Owens showing up to her doorstep can really easily tell that this person is just using a bunch of a bunch of buzzwords. Dangerous. This is not safety. And they're trying to destroy us. No, Candace Owens is just showing. You may not like it. You may not like people showing up to your personal residence. I get it. Um, by the way, Supreme Court justices didn't like it when leftists showed up rioting and looting and even trying to kill Brett Kavanaugh at their homes. But of course, we were told to shut up. This is just free speech. So uh, Candace Owens is just expressing her free speech and showing up to Patrice Cullors' home. And of course, Patrice Cullors gets the waterworks going so that she can once again capitalize upon the emotions of people. And that's what I meant with the training of protesters and why that's such a big issue is because it's a clear attempt to manipulate the emotions of people. And this is exactly what Black Lives Matter did to the tune of 70 million dollars for that organization, much of which you can't account for where it actually went to. You know, you say uh, there's sack lunches and benevolent efforts. Well, not near enough compared to the great... um, the great grift of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, um, I think there's probably more you could say about that, but that's kind of the high points in my mind of the documentary and some of the things that it exposes. So I just want to end with a couple of parting thoughts. And the first one would be kind of an addendum to what I just mentioned. Don't fall for emotional blackmail. Just because people cry, just because people talk about death threats, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're true. More and more, these kind of false, fake death threats are being thrown out there because people know, like, what kind of evil human being, what kind of monster would endorse a death threat? Before we jump on the bandwagon of a person who's trying to work up emotional tears, let's make sure that we that we think critically. I've said this on the show before, and I think it's worth saying again and again and again. You can do a lot with bayonets, but you can't sit on them. And the idea is this, is that you can force people, you can torture people, you can use totalitarian uh, tendencies to force people to do a lot of things. But one of the things you can't do is lure them into a sense of complacency and comfort, which is the best way to control people. That's where Aldous Huxley's Brave New World comes in, is that it's not a book about totalitarianism as much as it is a book about unbridled pleasure and how that warps people's minds to allow totalitarians to do whatever they want. As long as they're feeling comfort and pleasure and they've got enough drugs on board, then then you can get away with a multitude of different things. So it's deeply, deeply important that we think about these issues for ourselves, specifically Black Lives Matter. You might agree with the statement, fine. But the fact that you can agree with the organization after all of this time, I think is incredibly suspect and shows that you might be a victim of emotional blackmail and weaponized empathy and not thinking critically and clearly for yourself. This organization clearly grifted upon the death of an unfortunate soul, and I think that that should at least muster some compassion. Uh, The other thing is this, is that I would just say this. Uh, There's a part of me that almost appreciates people like Patrice Cullors because, you know, a fool and his money are soon parted and all the better because fools don't deserve that kind of money if they're going to 
give it to Black Lives Matter so that they can buy mansions for themselves. Dumb white people deserve to be extorted by Patrice Cullors if they're going to be that dumb. So I think more power to her. In a sense, I, I th I've heard people comment like this, and I think there's a sense in which it's true. This is capitalism. If you've got a problem with it, then maybe you got a problem with capitalism. Well, here's what I would say. Is it maybe a form of capitalism, but it's clearly an abuse of capitalism by preying upon the emotions of people, as we already discussed. So there's a part of me that does admire the Black Lives Matter movement and what they were able to do in separating white old liberals and white young liberals uh, from their money. Um, and then the third thing, which is the most important point of the documentary, and I'll get to what I think is the most important point of the story. Um, but the most important point of the documentary that Candace was trying to get across was this, is that the, the, the media served as a marketing campaign for Black Lives Matter to, to help them earn money. And so the idea is that the media just absolutely can't be trusted. They're a propagandistic arm and they're the enemy of the people. And I don't say that glibly because I know that that is a quote from a totalitarian dictator. I say that because I think we've got ample evidence, at least at this point in time, to absolutely agree with the main thesis of this documentary, which is the media plays you for fools and you're a fool if you fall for it. Um, and here's a clip of her kind of illustrating that. The media is your enemy. That is what I will say. And I believe that from the bottom of my heart after examining every corner of this case. The media scared the jury. <laughs> the media scared even politicians into agreeing in lockstep. There's no other way to examine the media but to recognize that they were the enemy. The media deserves a lot of blame. That's undeniable. But, but I have to be honest. Maybe this goes back to kind of the emotional blackmail thing and a fool in his money. But um, I, I think the main theme for me, and this is the fourth and final point, which is that the main theme for me is that this is a reminder of how sheepish people can be when they don't think for themselves. The fact that the media was able to quickly whip people up into a frenzy and were able to hijack people's emotions and hijack their intellect so easily just shows us that people are so quick to not think for themselves. Now, I want to be fair. Um, the, the media and other institutions have been infiltrated clearly by the left. You think about the public school system, you think about corporations, social media specifically, um, and even our government has been largely infiltrated by people who have a leftist mentality, a leftist ideology, um, and certainly with totalitarian tendencies at that. Um, so in fairness, I understand it's easy for us when we go through the indoctrination system of the academy, which clearly has shifted left long ago. It's, it's easy for us to fall victim to these things and not know it. But, but I think there's two kinds of people that we need to talk about at the end of the day that I wish this documentary had gone into a little bit greater detail with, because to me, this is the story at the end of the day. It's not just Black Lives Matter and the fact that they were able to fool people with the help of the media. It's that People were fooled. Now, why were they fooled? Well, here's why, because there's two kinds of people. The first is ignorant. There are people who genuinely still stand by Black Lives Matter, can look at the money trail and not be phased by it at all because MSNBC does their thinking for them. Um, and, and they're just ignorant people. But then the other thing is, is I think the thing that is most important to me because you can actually do something about this. Ignorance is, it's a little hard to see because you don't know that you're ignorant. You don't know what you don't know. But the second kind of people, they do know what 
they know, and they're just doing nothing about it. And so there's ignorant people and there's cowards. And the cowards are the people that I would try to speak to through, throughout this. And I know you may not be listening because, <laughs> uh, because I'm calling you a coward, but, but I, would just, I would just ask you to listen, coward, and listen carefully. We all have a little bit of cowardice in us. Courage is way harder, way more difficult of a commodity to come by than, than cowardice. Cowardice is so simple. I think we have a natural disposition toward it. I'm a coward in some ways. You're a coward in some ways. And we have to work hard to get rid of it. But there are certainly cowards on the left and the right in, in this situation who fell for the Black Lives Matter stuff. And they know that if they say anything about it, if they recant their black square, that that people will misunderstand and misrepresent them and say, well, does that mean you're a racist? And obviously, if you don't stand for Black Lives Matter, you're a racist. And they don't think about the fact that the name Black Lives Matter is clearly intended to do this kind of this kind of like Freudian trap of of subconsciously thinking that you're a racist just because you might be actually thinking for yourself about this issue. I guess at the end of the day, there's a lot of pressure upon us to accept the narratives of the narrative of Black Lives Matter and and other organizations like them. And it takes a healthy amount of courage to resist that kind of stuff. It's time that we stopped being cowards. It's time that we stopped hiding behind platitudes and and uh, pontification. Uh, Pascal said this. He said, if you want everyone to like you, don't speak. So in other words, you just do nothing if you want to be a man pleaser. But if you actually want to make a difference, you're going to have to run the risk of actually doing something that somebody doesn't like. You're going to have to run the risk of speaking out and maybe saying things that you don't even agree with and maybe need to change the tone or maybe need to even realize that you were wrong about what you said. But but nonetheless, speak, because if you don't speak, you can't be corrected for those things or you can't make a difference with your speech when you speak out. It's more important than ever before that we find a group of people who are not just standing back and criticizing, but are actually doing something and making a difference. Now, I say this because in my community, the Christian community, we're really, really bad at this. We use this kind of platitudinal thinking. We'll just preach the gospel. Don't get political. And just simply Jesus, just focus on Jesus. And in the meantime, really focusing on Jesus would mean focusing on the pro-life issue and focusing on the gender transitioning of minors. Christians especially need to lead the way here as lovingly and as tenderly, as graciously as possible. We need to be brave and we need to speak out and we need to be courageous. I'm deeply concerned over that second issue of the rise of cowardice exposed by the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it's something that deserves our attention. Nonetheless, I think the documentary deserves your attention as well. So I wish you well as you watch it. And then you can comment below, tell me what you thought about it, or if you've already seen it, I'd love to hear from you. But nonetheless, it's most important that we just think for ourselves on this one. All right, guys, thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and to go with God.